0: you've got your Bibles, do turn uh, to 2 Corinthians. We're going to work our way through most of those uh, verses from verse 16 in chapter 4 down to to verse 10 in chapter 5 in the next half an hour. And uh, we're all waiting, aren't we, for the day uh, when all COVID restrictions uh, will be lifted. Uh, That'll be a great day, won't it, whenever that is. Um, But we need to face up, and our society needs to face up to an uncomfortable truth despite what the politicians uh, would like you to believe, that when this eventually happens, uh, the world will still be broken. There will still be wars and famine. There will still be physical and mental sickness. There will still be loneliness and broken relationships. And there will still be grief, uh, because ultimately there will still be death. And these things will happen to us. We'll be affected by them. And we will have to live in that world. And the question then Begs itself is how how can we continue to do that? Well, this dilemma uh, is nothing new. Uh, they say that there's nothing new under the sun, and uh, somebody much wiser than I once uh, wrote that. Uh, but it's true, isn't it? And uh, and here the apostle Paul uh, understands the reality of living in a world that is broken. And if you read 2 Corinthians, it's a book that's often. Uh, neglected. But if you read through 2 Corinthians, you will see uh, the difficulties. He lists the difficulties that he faces. And he talks about the broken relationships uh, to his own mortality. They were very real to him. And in chapter 1, Paul goes as far as to say that these difficulties made him despair of life itself. He wanted to give up. He didn't even want to live anymore. Maybe you feel like that, or maybe you felt like that in the past. But it leads us to ask, well, why did Paul carry on? Because he didn't just stop. And in two Corinthians chapter four and verse fourteen, uh, we see uh, that Paul writes that knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also will raise us also with Jesus and bring you with us with you into His presence. For Paul, his ability to keep on going was grounded in the fact that the God who raised Jesus would also raise him. And if you're a Christian here this morning, that is true for you too, that Jesus was raised, and because of that, we know that one day we will be raised too, to a place that is perfect, that won't perish or corrupt. And here, Paul is telling us that Christ's resurrection and then our subsequent resurrection is not only our hope in death, that it is also our only hope in life. And Paul says in verse 16 that because of the hope that we have in the second coming of Jesus and our subsequent resurrection with him, we read, don't we, at the start there of verse 16, we, so we do not lose heart. That's why we don't lose heart. So this morning, we're going to see three pra- practical implications of this and how we can make sure we wait for Christ's return And our resurrection without wilting in our faith. So let's do that. The first thing that we see that how we can wait without wilting is that we need to have an eternal perspective. We need to have an eternal perspective. I love the perspective that being up high gives. Uh, Once coming home from America we flew over over Cardiff. Uh, It wasn't raining so you could see the whole city. Uh, Our house and everything else looked very different from 35,000 feet in the air rather than just seeing the street that I was that I was driving on. I could see the whole city. And in the same way, we need to have a different perspective to the world around us. Our society tells us that this world is all there is. It bombards us with that message. But here Paul is, is calls us to looking at everything in the light of eternity. And this eternal perspective that he mentions shows itself in three ways. We see, firstly, that our physical deterioration is in the context of our spiritual renewal. Our physical deterioration is in the context of our spiritual renewal. You can see there in verse 16, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our bodies are failing.
1: Those of you older
0: here, I can see you're agreeing with me if you, if you can hear me, uh, that is. But as Christians, we are, to, we are to view our failing bodies in the light of how inwardly we are being renewed from the old sinful man or woman that you are into the image of Jesus. So your body is wasting away. But God is using all things to make you like him. And you may not be as like him as you'd like, but you're more like him than you were. And that's because by grace, every single day, God is using all things to make him you like his son. And it is a process that is going to finish when we see him on that resurrection day. We'll be like him then, won't we? So when we see that aging process is real and like me i find that even in my early 40s i can't do the things that i used to do in my 20s you know when half, half past nine is an acceptable bedtime you know you you're, you're getting on don't you compared to you know, that's just when things were, were getting started when you were younger but when we can't do these things we're to look inwards and remember that christ is working in us so it's not just that we're aging, but we see inside of us uh, how that Jesus is working. The second second thing that we we see in terms of this eternal perspective is that we see the difficulties of this life in the light of our future glory. So not only do we see how we're aging on the outside, we see that, that we're being renewed to be more like Jesus on the inside, our difficulties we see in the future glory. In verse 17, Paul writes, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The trials that you are going through that are so heavy are light in comparison to our future glory. The trials that you are going through on this earth that feel, feel like they're never ending are only momentary compared to the eternal glory that we're destined for in Christ. But I want you to notice that it's not just that we're to compare suffering and glory here, but verse 17 clearly shows us that we must remember that suffering produces glory. Glory follows suffering. And often our problem is, is that we see glory following suffering as night, sorry, as day follows on from night. But a more helpful way of looking at it is to see that glory follows suffering in the way that spring follows the winter. The wintertime prepares the earth for the spring, and so our sufferings prepare our souls for glory. So even right now, in this time of COVID trial, it is in God's mighty, loving, sovereign hand. And by his grace, he is working for us something eternal. So you and I, we're not like the world, are we? We're not bowled over in the face of pointless, cruel suffering because we understand that our sufferings as dark and as difficult as they are are producing something wonderful and we know that one day when we see jesus face to face all of our suffering will be over and we will see a glory as a result that we could never ever imagine the third thing that paul says uh, around this eternal perspective is that we see the temporary physical world in the light of Christ's eternal kingdom. Look at what it says in verse 18, that while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul's point is simply this. Everything that you can see, your homes, your relationships, your businesses, your cars, your family picture albums, your toys, All of those things are temporary. And you'll either leave them behind when you die, or they'll go up in smoke. But on the other hand, Jesus' kingdom, our inheritance, they will last forever. And what Paul is telling us is, is that part of this eternal perspective is that rather than focusing on these physical things that we can see, that instead we are looking to God's kingdom and to the spiritual. And that is a big challenge to us, isn't it, in our culture today? Because we have a culture that is all about what you can see all about what you can see. Television, drumming weird, drumming our phones, it is all about what we can see. And we get so taken up with it, don't we? Some of you may be having all the gadgets in the world. Some of you, it's your families. Others, it's enjoying good food and drink or having a great holiday. And none of those things are wrong, are they, in themselves? But our eternal mindset allows us to keep them and understand their importance compared to... To that of Christ's kingdom, because even the best parts of this world are fading, and spoiling, and perishing, compared to Christ's kingdom. So we must keep a look at the scene, the unseen. Sorry, and not the scene. So what are you looking to this morning? Are you looking to the scene or the unseen? Most of you are very loads of familiar faces. I know you come here. You've been here for years. And you know the correct answer to that question. But consider your heart. Consider what you spent your week doing this week and thinking.
1: Are you looking to the seen
0: or to the unseen?
1: If I was to ask your
0: family, what would they say? Or your work colleagues, what would they say? Let's lessen our grip around the things of this world. And instead focus on the one to come. Because the second coming of the Lord Jesus and our resurrection calls you and I to have an eternal perspective. The second thing that we need to, uh, to wait uh, without wilting is that we need to know we have a certain future. We need to know we have a certain future. Our society loves feelings. How you feel or how you are made to feel is the most important thing. So our culture, feelings equals truth. And it's easy for us to fall into that trap. After all, God, God created us, didn't he, with feelings. And emotions. But they're never a great guide to base your future. Uh, And as Christians we have a certain future that is based on facts. In chapter 5 and verse 1, what does Paul start with? He starts with three simple words, for we know. Not for we feel, but we know. Well, what do we know? Well, we see, don't we, that we know our current bodies are not permanent and will be destroyed. In verse in, in verse uh, one, we read, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Picture there is camping. I hate camping. I won't surprise many of you. I absolutely detest it. It is the pits, right? So there may be some of you love camping. Do you like camping? I'm sorry, right? Uh, and, and you may have the best intentions, right? And you might think, oh, when we get downstairs, we have a cup of tea. I'm going to tell him camping is the best thing and I'm going to try and persuade him. Don't bother doing that. It's not going to work, right? But even though you love camping, you don't want to stay camping forever, do you? It's all right when it's nice and warm. When the weather, like it is today, a good old Welsh summer's day, and it's cloudy and wet and it's a bit cool, you don't want to do it all the time because tents are temporary. You want to go home. And after a while, so I'm told, uh, the stakes of the tent begin to loosen, the poles begin to bend, the canvas sags, the cold penetrates, and it's even less comfortable than it was to start with. And, and Paul here, he is saying, isn't he, that our bodies are like that, they're like a tent, they're not meant to last forever. And one day, as a tent will be folded up, never to be used again, if Jesus doesn't return before, we will die and our bodies will be just like that tent so no amount of oil of ole or plastic surgery or botox or anything else is going to stop that
1: just Just like like a
0: tent wears out so so will our bodies and we will die and again our culture can't deal with this, can it it likes to hide from the fact but Christianity is clear it calls it out all the time that we will die but we also know that when we die we're going to have a whole new body so Paul is talking about a physical body here.
1: It will be made by God. It will be free from the effects of sin. And that
0: changes everything because it means that, you see, death isn't the end. If you're, a, if you're a Christian here this morning, you know that if cancer takes you, or Alzheimer's, or old age, or a heart attack, or a road accident, you will have a building from God that is not made with hands. A building that will last forever. That will never get run down or collapse. And Paul is emphasizing that you know that. But how can you be sure? Well, in verse 5, we see that he who has prepared for us this, for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we can be sure because the person who is preparing this new body for us is God Himself, and He always does what He promises, but He has also guaranteed our future by giving us His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. So you think of the days before, you know, credit cards and you could just pay, you can't pay, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to wait, wouldn't you? You can just get a bit of plastic out and pay for something. But what you might do if you couldn't afford it straight away is you might make that down payment, wouldn't you? To make sure that is guaranteed as yours. Or if there's something, even know, you might have to make a down payment to reserve it. For yourself. And here God has made that down payment to ensure that this is ours. He has given us his spirit. He doesn't just promise our resurrection. He has given us the down payment so that you and I living in a world that is broken can know that it will happen. As I said, this world has no answer to death. This world has no answer to being mortal. But as Christians, it's not just that we've got a answer. As Christians, we know. We're not in a situation where we don't have the answer. We know that every single thing that God has promised will be fulfilled and we have nothing to fear. So how should we respond to that? Well, verse 2 says, for in this tent we groan. Now, some of y'all need to note there that that it doesn't say that we moan. It says that we groan. So we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. You and I should be groaning because we are burdened. And what are we burdened for? Surely it is this in verse 4 what is mortal would be swallowed up by life. The picture is like Jonah being swallowed up by the great fish. Life will one day come and just swallow up everything that is mortal. But in the meantime, we should be groaning for that day when we see all of the pain and the suffering around us. And we want that to be swallowed up by life. And we should groan, shouldn't we, that sin would be swallowed up, that crying would be swallowed up, that pain would be swallowed up, that grief would be swallowed up, that that cancer and mental illness and loneliness and death would all be swallowed up. Because one day God promises here, doesn't it, that it will be swallowed up by life. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? We like to think that this is the land of the living. And that what happens after is the land of the dying whereas here has turned upside down isn't it here this is the land of the dying if I can say that and if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus life will one day swallow it up and you'll be in the land of the living our current body is wasting away like a tent when Jesus returns, we will have a new body that is guaranteed because of God's spirit living in us. So whether we're in the valley battling through each day or we are moved by the bombs and the bloodshed that we see on our TV news bulletins or even if we're on the mountaintop and life couldn't be any better than it has been the past seven days, we should be longing for that day when what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Well, the third thing that Paul, the third implication that Paul gives us of how we can wait without wilting, we see that we should live a courageous life in, in verses 6 to 10. We're to live a courageous life. I wonder if you have enough courage to be a Christian. Do you have enough courage to be a Christian? Are you tough enough? Maybe some of you think that the Christianity is for wimps. I'm sorry if we've given you that impression, but it couldn't be further from the truth. The life of a Christian is one of courage. Verse six reads, "So we are always of good courage." This knowledge that we have a new, we will have this new body, that we've been given the Holy Spirit as a as a deposit, it gives us confidence. It literally, it makes us courageous. And these verses show us a number of the things about this courageous life. We see that it is a life of faith. We read, don't we, in, in verse 6 that we know, there's that word again, that we know, uh, that while we're at home in the body, and we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith. Now, this isn't talking about physical walking. When you're physically walking, walk by sight that's important but christian when we walk we walk by faith and whilst we're away from the lord we must live by faith and that means seeing things through god's eyes and not our own that takes courage like noah he was commended wasn't he for building an ark for a flood when it had never flooded on earth before are you willing to be thought of as a fool like Noah was for obeying what God has told you to do, even when it seems ridiculous. Or maybe like Abraham, who was clinging to the promise that he would be the father of many nations, even though he was childless at the age of 100. And then when he had that child, he was willing to sacrifice him for God. Do you believe God's promises, no matter how dark things are? Are you willing to obey him in any circumstances? Or like Moses, who chose to be a Hebrew slave rather than the prince of Egypt. Sometimes living by faith means giving up our securities. You give up your comforts to follow God and further his kingdom. But we also see that this courageous life longs to be with the Lord. We continue, don't we, Uh, in verse 8, that yes, we we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We all have a longing for home. Us Welsh have a word for it, don't we? It's We have that longing for that place and the people. I remember the first time I went to, to South Africa with work. I told you a lot had happened in the last couple of years. Uh, it was an incredible experience. I got to see all sorts of things, but I wasn't at home and Jenna wasn't with me. I saw all these incredible things, but as much as I enjoyed it, there was part of me that was missing home and wanted to be with Jenna. I wanted to be at home, and I wanted to be with her, and that you and I should have that same longing to be at home with the Lord Jesus, so that even as we enjoy the good things of this life, we know that we are not truly at home until we are with him. The courageous life says that as good as this world can be, it cannot compare to being with Jesus. Being with the one who has showed us undeserved love, who is totally compassionate towards us, the one who has a radical commitment to us and our good, the one who has cleansed us from our sin and is going to present us before the Father with great joy, the one who sustains us, upholds us, and is with us in every situation. How, no matter how great this world is, being with Jesus will be infinitely better. And we should long to be with him.
1: The courageous life
0: also aims to please him. Verse 9 says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. This is the supreme Christian ambition. This is all a Christian's life is simply pleasing Jesus. While we're waiting for him to return, that's it that's it that's all we're called to do every day but that takes real courage doesn't it in a culture like ours
1: and then we have to fight against ourselves as well because
0: if you're anything like me you have to admit that your goal is often pleasing me and if it's not pleasing me it's about pleasing others but paul reminds us that there is only one who is worthy of pleasing and his name is Jesus, and this, this is, is where I try and rescue, rescue myself. Because what, what I like to do, do is to tell myself that if, if I go to church, church twice on a Sunday and I'm out in prayer meeting or on Zoom on prayer meeting on a on a, on a, on a Wednesday, as it is with us in Emmanuel, then I'm okay. I'm, I'm pleasing Him. Now, those things can please Jesus if they're done with the right attitude and the right heart. But pleasing Jesus is about far more than that. It should turn our lives upside down, shouldn't it? Pleasing Jesus means putting him first in all things. It means putting him in his glory above everything else. And that should have a huge impact on how we spend our money, what we do with our time, how we use the gifts that God has given us. It means that we should be loving all other Christians, sacrificially giving to them. It means doing good to all people. Paul, as he writes to the Colossians, says, doesn't he, whatever you do, You're serving the Lord Jesus, whatever you do. you to do it for him and not for men. The life of courage does all things to please Jesus, whatever the consequences. And finally, the courageous life is a response to knowing that we must one day give account to Jesus. That verse 10, it seems a little bit strange to us. uh, But I want you to remember, Paul is writing this to believers when he says this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We are, to appear, we are to appear before God and give an account for what we have done. And that should spur us on to live courageously. Paul doesn't mention it here to take God's blessing away from us or enjoyment of him. But it it, it reminds us, doesn't it, the necessity of living life full on for Christ. Think about it. If I'm in work tomorrow, I will be in work tomorrow. And if I've got to give account for something to my boss in work, I want to have something good to tell her. I want her to be pleased with what I've done, the work that I'm doing. Well, how much more should we be like that with the Lord Jesus, knowing that one day we're going to come before him? We We should should want, shouldn't we, to to give a good good account. We should should want to say, look at these things. Look Look at this. And that motivates us to live our life courageously and step out in radical faith. So whether you're a Christian or not here this morning, and if you're not a Christian, it's great to have you here. But it is true that everything will be known and revealed on that day. It will happen to everybody. We will all have to stand before God and give an account. For those who are in Christ with sins forgiven, God will give us our reward. But for those who have rejected Jesus, their doom will be sealed. There will be no coming back from that point. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, don't wait to discover that for yourself. Come to Christ today. That is the thing that would please him the most, coming to him and asking him for forgiveness for your sins. But as we finish this morning, if you're a Christian here, you too need to come to Christ, don't you? And why do you need to do that is because if you're anything like me, you fall and you fail. You know that you're a million miles away from having a true eternal focus. You know that so often you doubt your future. And you know that very often, pleasing Christ isn't your sole aim. You know that waiting for him to return without wilting is really hard but here jesus and paul saying do not give up and instead come to jesus because he knows and he's not harsh he's not trigger happy he's not exasperated with you he understands your struggles you're not alone on in that regard he is there with you He's not stood there by your side waiting for you to fail wishing that he'd never saved you he's not pointing his finger at you thinking what an idiot no he's there with you in your failure saying to you come to me let me give you rest and if you know his heart you will know that what he says is true because all you need to do is come because jesus doesn't want new resolutions about how you were going to do better this morning instead he wants you to come to him he wants you to know that he will finish the work that he has started that he will continue to renew you every single day until you stand with joy before his throne but he wants you to come to him so come to him fall more in love with him rely on him and you will find the strength to keep on going and ensure that you can wait for his second coming without wilting let